So we're in, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we've been in this book for nine weeks, eight, nine weeks now already, believe it or not. We're going to take a break during the Christmas season, and we're going to do a four-week Christmas series starting next week, and then we'll come back to the book of 2 Corinthians in January. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to an end, no, has, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Let's pray and we'll look at these incredible verses. Father God, we thank you for this morning that we can gather. Thank you for your church, your church that's meeting across the world this morning. We thank you for what you're doing in places like Liberia. We thank you for the call of ministry upon the Williams family and how that this is a, a call that requires sacrifice, but incredible joy. We thank you for Buzz and his faithfulness to the campus at ABC. We, God, we thank you for what you're doing. And I pray, God, that you will allow us to work in your heart. We thank you that you have redeemed us. You've justified us. You've saved us. You've called us to ministry where we're at. And I pray today will be an encouragement in that direction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I went to a small Christian school similar to the size of GCA here, and our senior class was only 12 kids, and so we were very involved in planning our senior trip. And so our senior trip, uh, the parents got together, students got together, some of the chaperones, teachers got together, and we decided on, after New York got eliminated where I wanted to go, we decided on Atlanta. Now, that seems for us, that's super familiar, but for us in West Virginia, that was a big trip for us. And somebody in the group suggested that, you know, we we're talking about restaurants, and they said, we need to go to a really, really nice seafood restaurant. And I, you know, I, I just, that was hard for me. Honestly, as a kid, my parents were, were frugal because, you know, looking back now, I knew we just didn't have a lot of money. And so our choices of restaurants literally were the McDonald's. These are actual pictures. McDonald's in my town, the Captain D's in Charleston, West Virginia. That was our big trip. And then when we were on vacation, you know, the really fancy restaurant would be this log cabin at this park we'd go to called Watoga State Park, all right? So these were fancy restaurants to me, all right? These were, this was a really special deal to go out to eat. And so as you can imagine, when they suggested some nice, fancy seafood, I protested. I, I was like, what? You know, why do we have to waste our money and our time to go to somewhere fancy? I mean, let's just, you know, Captain D's is great seafood. Long John's is great seafood. And our trip organizer and the others who were trying to promote this, they were trying to convince me that experiencing quality, fresh-caught seafood was really, really going to be a great experience. And the, the organizers were frustrated with me because I had my mindset. You know, I was convinced this was a waste of money and a waste of time. Well, we go to Atlanta. We end up going to the nice seafood restaurant. 
And I can't even enjoy it while I'm there because all I'm doing is sitting there complaining in my mind and probably verbally like, all right, this is no better than Captain D's. This is no better than Long John's because here I was, this kid, this like couldn't care less kid, you know, and here's this fresh caught seafood, just wonderful food, just fresh from the Gulf probably being served. And all I wanted was frozen, greasy, deep fried seafood, right? And so this puts in context a little bit in a, in, a, in a light comparison of what Paul's up against here in this passage of Scripture. He's trying to get to, across to the Corinthians that the work of the Spirit is so much more glorious than the Mosaic law. He's using this comparison of saying, you know, Moses and the law compared to the new covenant. There's, there is no comparison here. This is incredible what God has done through Jesus and the new covenant. No comparison whatsoever. And so let's catch up to speed to where we're at and why Paul is even talking about this today in the first place. In chapter 3, Paul begins a defense of his own apostleship. He begins to defend himself, and he will carry on this case all the way up to chapter 6 of this book. And if you remember last week, Paul was saying that he shouldn't need to keep proving that he's a genuine apostle and the representative of God. Why not? Well, interestingly enough, he uses the Corinthians and their lives as proof of the fact that he's a true apostle. Do you remember this from last week? He said, I'm, you're my letter of recommendation. He's saying, look at your lives and the change that God has brought to your lives as proof that I am truly an apostle. I'm truly bringing the word of God. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why Paul was the founder of this church. Why in the world would he have had to defend himself in this way? Well, the Corinthians, as we can all be guilty of, bought into kind of the spirit of the age. And the people who were the um, prominent speakers, orators of their day were much different than Paul. They were very showy. They were, you know, the, the standard of the day was this big personalities, leadership, entertainment, personal charm, flattery, those type of things. And that wasn't who Paul was. And so they were rejecting him. So he sustains this long defense of his apostleship. And I think it's very interesting, you know, that we look at the Corinthians' lives, the radical change that God made in them as proof of Paul's true message, his true apostleship. Because we know that the Corinthians were quite messy, but the truth is their lives had been radically changed because of the gospel that Paul brought to them. They were people who worshiped pagan idols. They lived in debauchery. They were just living for themselves. And so the Spirit, verse 3 uh, and let I me mean, just go back and read that for you. It says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. So he's, he's uh, backing up his apostleship, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. So were they messy, a messy church? Absolutely. Were they struggling still with sin? Absolutely. But the spirit had radically changed them. How had the spirit radically changed them? Much like what Sean read this morning in his text, Jesus Christ radically changed them because they became new creations in Christ. New creations in Christ. Let me read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll get there eventually, but I need to go ahead and just tie this in so tightly. At this point, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're a new creation if you're in Christ. The old has passed away, Behold, the new has come. God has placed his spirit within you, believer. Do you believe that? His spirit is within you. 
Your identity, identity is radically changed to the point where God says, you're a new creation in Christ. You're not the same person that you were before Christ. You're a new creation. And that should make such a huge, significant difference in your life. How so? I, I think it's important that we lay some foundation here because it is easy to look at the Corinthians and the messiness of their lives and the problems within this church and be like, really, the Holy Spirit's working? But the Holy Spirit is working in the lives of believers. And, the, and Jesus was working in the life of the Corinthians, and he's working in us today, those who truly know him. And so the second thing is every true believer has a new disposition toward sin, have, they have a new mindset about sin, even the Corinthians. Something fundamentally changed within them, something radical changed. Let me illustrate it this way. Many of you know I'm a grandfather now. We have a little granddaughter. She's four months old. She loves milk, right? Well, baby doesn't love milk, right? That's all that you're supposed to give them, I guess, until six months old, eight months old, something like that. Milk is what babies thrive on. They live on it. When I was a baby, my mom, as I grew up, my mom said, yeah, you loved milk. Like, all you wanted to do was drink milk. Milk, milk, milk. That was my life, was milk. I couldn't get enough milk. Anytime I had a bottle, it was full of milk, right? And you were probably the same way, hopefully, right? So you drank a lot of milk. Milk was your life. Milk is how you sustained your life when you were an infant. Let me fast forward now to my life today. As some of you may be, I'm lactose intolerant, all right? I could drink a glass of milk, but you know what happens? I'm miserable. I pay for it later, right? It, it does not do good to my body, to my system. Why? The same thing, it's sin. Before sin, before Christ, sin was our life. That's all we wanted was sin, sin, sin. And even you, you may think, well, I was a pretty moral person, but even your morality was about yourself. It was about you because you had, did not have the ability to love like Jesus gives ability to love with no strings attached. Just loving because God is love. And so as a believer, can you still sin? Absolutely. We do it a lot, don't we? But the true believer who's listening to the Holy Spirit will be miserable. You're probably going to be miserable regardless. Sometimes we can get so callous, but we become miserable in our sin. We become frustrated in our sin because it's not who you are anymore. It doesn't agree with you. It's not the way that your new creation thrives and lives life. And so if you're miserable and you're a believer Look at your life. Maybe you're just allowing sin just to run rampant in your life. I love how Pastor Andrew Farley words this. He says, you're going to prove your new identity one way or another, either by sinning and being miserable because you're not made for it anymore, or by living in dependency on Christ and being fulfilled. So Paul says to these Corinthians, these messy Corinthians, he says, Something fundamental has changed. You have a new disposition towards sin. You're not under law. You're under grace. And so the fundamental truth of the gospel is that we have this new relationship with sin. Let me just stay here just for a second before we jump back into our text because I think this is important. If you've truly come to Christ, then you probably remember a time where God gave you this new understanding about sin. It was mentioned up here today that sin separates us from holy God. 
And so this shouldn't be news to you that you have a new disposition towards sin. This started at the point of your salvation when you saw, I need a savior. I need Jesus because God is holy and righteous and the gulf between us is way too large. I can't get there on my own. I need Jesus. What is this gulf? What is this chasm? It's sin that separates us from holy God. And so we realized that we needed a savior to save us from our sin. So right from the beginning, you recognized, did you not, that sin was a problem because God can't have sin in his presence. And so we have to continue to build on that mindset to understand that we can't allow sin just to, to just be at peace with sin in our lives. We continue to fight sin. We have this new nature, this new disposition towards sin. And number three foundational point before we get into this, through God's word, the Holy Spirit's Spirit progressively shapes and molds us into the image of Jesus Christ. In our text today, Paul contrasts the old covenant, the ministry of the old covenant, with the new covenant, which is characterized by the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul argues that the ministry of the Spirit is so much more glorious than the ministry of the law or the old covenant because it actually brings righteousness and it brings life. Commands and behavioral passages in the New Testament, which are there for us, should not be mistaken, listen carefully, as Jewish law. We don't look in the Bible at the 613 commands of the Jewish law and live our lives based on, let me see if I can conform my life to these laws. That's not the way that God has wired us with the new covenant and the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah and the prophets predicted a day when God would come in and give us a heart of flesh and that we would have the Spirit, and the Spirit brings life. And Jesus said, a day's coming when the Spirit will be poured out, and we're going to have rivers of living water flowing out of us. And that's what Paul is speaking of, this new covenant way of living. But, you know, Paul is definitely not saying, and this is what critics today and people today who don't understand the Bible, they take it and hear what they want to hear from it. They think Paul was trying to advocate some kind of carefree way of living apart from law. But we, we see in Scripture that's not the case. And Paul said, by no means, how can you who died to sin live any longer in it? We talked about that a few weeks ago. And so we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we live by faith in him. We don't live by the law. Now, let me say this, because there are different traditions here, different people grew up in different types of churches. Living by the Spirit is not some mystical, experience, feelings-driven way of living. Now, there's definitely a spectrum of people who, you know, some people over here lean really heavily toward the, um, those feelings and, like, the Spirit's promptings. And then we got people way on this extreme on this side who they totally discount any of that, and it's all about God's Word, and I just look in the Word and follow it, and it's absolute, and just follow the Word, follow the Word. But life isn't always lived in these extremes, right? I mean, like, reality is sometimes there's decisions to make and choices to make that we can't find absolute in Scripture. Sometimes we have to make decisions. And so I think the New Covenant behavioral commands that are there prevalent even in Paul's, often in Paul's commands, reinforce the work of the Spirit within our life. I think that's the balance that I've kind of, uh, kind of arrived at. And does that make sense to you? That the, the, the guidelines of Scripture help us to understand the Spirit's work in our lives and keeps us in check when we as believers can very much, and I've been there and you've been there, 
tuned out the spirit. I don't want to listen to you, spirit. I don't want to listen to what you're having to say. I want to live life the way that feels right to me. And we can justify whatever we want to justify. But I think these new covenant behavioral commands pull us back to reality. And they help us see how the, the world, the flesh, and the devil can tempt us and deceive us and work in our lives. In fact, Paul writes in Galatians, he says, the deeds of the flesh are evident. So if we're in tune with the Spirit, if we're understanding like, okay, Spirit, I want to allow you to work in my life. I'm taking the Word. I'm faithfully in the Word, studying to show myself approved to God. Then all of a sudden, the works of the flesh are evident. And, and, and then he lists these out in case there's some that you just like, all right, I'm, I'm kind of just denial that these are problems, right? And this is not an exhaustive list. He says, I, he says, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you that these practices, no one that does these will inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul makes it very clear that God, in the same passage, God is working through the Spirit, these fruits of the Spirit out of your life and my life. The fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, patience, all these things as we grow in our understanding of who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, love for his word, the fruit of the Spirit are produced in and out of our lives and we love people and we love God and those things are not a burden to us. And so before, right before we get into the text here, I'm going to read from Romans 13 to provide clarity to how this kind of fits together. Paul writes, Let no debt, this will be on the screen, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Wow, right? So instead of asking what's in this for me or what do I deserve, we say I want to love people because Christ has given him his love to me. And as a result of this, this, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit are bursting out of my life, and so I don't want to do anything that harms other people. And so just kind of recap these foundational things because of this passage. It's, it's so, I would say it's so startling, if we're, we're honest with, as we look at what Paul says about the law, it's so hard to even realize that Paul is saying this. And I can't imagine the Jews in Paul's day reading this, what they might have thought. So the Spirit confirms our new identity as a new creation in Christ, the Spirit enables us to see and to fight our sin, and the Holy Spirit is a lamp to illuminate God's Word and, and progressively conform us to the image of Jesus. And so as Paul launches in this text, I'm going to ask a question to, as I'm reading the text. Why is Paul talking to a bunch of Gentiles about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? It's possible that there were these people who were called Judaizers, which were in, in other churches, who came in to sow into the Christians, these early Christians, false teaching that you had to put your faith in Jesus and you also had to follow the Mosaic law in order to be right with God and find peace with God. But I don't really think, based on the clues of this book, that's the case. 
I think for him, the best way to teach an appreciation for what they have in the new covenant is to tell the story of the old covenant. So he tells these Gentile believers the story of Moses to contrast it with the amazing and radical story of the gospel. So I'm going to read the text for you one more time, and I'm going to put it up for you in a chart form as I read it. And just follow along as I read. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And so this comparison between the old covenant and new covenant, right, comparing fresh seafood and a nice restaurant to a Captain D's, doesn't even pale in comparison to what Paul is saying here, right? You look at that illustration to kind of give you a point, like a reference, like this is crazy, the, the, the contrast he's making. Now, if you're sitting here and you're saying, okay, help me out, all right, I'm kind of new to this, what is the old covenant? The old covenant was a conditional agreement that God made with nation Israel. And in the old covenant, the Israelites were required to obey God and keep at least 613, uh, yeah, 613 laws. In return, God promised to bless and protect them. And so the old covenant required repeated sacrifices of animals as a reminder of the people's sin. And in Exodus 34, which Paul references here, he speaks of Moses. Look at the verse again, verse 7. And if the ministry of death carved on letters of stone, you may think about Moses there in those tablets of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face. What's the background of that, if you don't know? The background of that is Moses carried two stone tablets to the top of Mount Sinai, and the glory of God appeared to him. Just amazing. So amazing that verse 29 of Exodus 34 says that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he came down from the mountain, Moses, Moses did not know that his, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. That's a pretty beautiful picture, isn't it? That's an amazing picture. Moses comes down. They look at him like, what's going on with Moses, right? His face is just glowing, right? And, and he's been with God. He's, he's spoken with God. And God had poured out his presence on Moses in a very special way. And Paul says, that ain't nothing, right? That ain't nothing. I love how N.T. Wright, commentator, he writes this. He says, Paul wants the Corinthians to realize that when God is at work in them by his spirit, there is a glory at work that puts even Moses in the shade. It's pretty amazing. Will not the ministry of the Spirit, verse 8, have even more glory? Paul continues, verse 9, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Why does the ministry of righteousness far exceed the old covenant? Because, Paul says, it was a covenant that could only bring condemnation. It brought death. It could tell people what to do, 
but it could not provide them the help to do it. The new covenant, the ministry of righteousness, gives believers the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, because we've heard that a number of times. We can hear it, and it just passes by us. The ministry of righteousness, the new covenant, the gospel, gives believers the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. How can we not, if we're a new creation, have a radical change of direction and disposition in our life? If the Spirit is within us and Christ is our hope and he's our everything, and those who came to Christ, you came to that realization at the moment of salvation, God graced you with that revelation of himself. How can that not change us? The righteousness of Christ given to us in full at salvation. I don't know about you, but if, if, you're, if you have employees, what would happen if you told your employees, I'm going to pay you at the beginning of the week, and then I want you to work the rest of the week, right? How would that work out for you? All right, let's try that with our kids, all right? All right, here's your allowance for taking out the trash, making your bed every day for the next week, right? It's so counterintuitive the way that the gospel works that the righteousness is given to us. No strings attached. By grace through faith in Christ alone that we've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this process that God is working within us, that Christ in us, the hope of glory, is a mysterious process, but you know what? It's still by grace through faith in Christ. Is there effort required? Absolutely, but there's not earning. There's a big difference. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's done, finished, complete. It is finished, Jesus said. Your identity, identity has been radically changed through the gospel. The old covenant was good, was a good thing because it reflected something of the glory of God. But the new covenant ministry brings righteousness, real, actual, God-honoring, holy, moral righteousness. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, he's saying, there's no need for Jewish people to keep 613 laws. And if these Judaizers show up at your church trying to preach this, just know this is not the gospel that I'm bringing to you. Trusting Jesus alone will lead us to upright, godly living that pleases God. And the natural byproduct of knowing Jesus is that we bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing truth. We need to have new covenant eyes as we read the Scripture. The Old Testament, I was talking to Brendan about this the other day, the Old Testament has amazing value to us. We should look at passages like Moses and him going to the mountain, and we see the face, the glory of God just on his face. But what that makes us do is to run to Jesus. That's what New Covenant believers do. When we read a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament, Jesus should be on our minds. We should be thinking about what he did for us. And all of this is a foreshadowing of what was to come for the Israelites and for us today. And then let me say this as well. Some people will go so far as to say, Grace means that you just make no effort whatsoever. It's kind of let go and let God, right? 
that's definitely not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches things like we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not work for our salvation, but work out our salvation. So as I said a minute ago, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to thinking we're earning some favor. And that's the, that's the thing about the law that we need to be careful of. Because we can run to law and ask it to do something it was never intended to do, which was to provide us righteousness. And we'll talk about this more next week. It points us to our need for Jesus. And so God uses things in our life because as his spirit produces more and more discipline in our lives, more self-control, which is one of the fruit of the spirit, then we want to engage in things and practices like accountability and community and prayer and study and even having a time, a quiet time, even though we don't earn merit with a quiet time. A quiet time is just a way to get alone without distractions with God and I look at it as like first thing in the morning, I'm hearing my marching orders for that day. God, what are you teaching me? What are you saying? And how should I live my life today? All the things that you've already planned ahead for me today, God, I want to step in those. I want to walk in those things. And so we respond to these things, these disciplines, these habits. We see it as it's just a response to his grace being poured out on us. But it's so easy to flip that and make it about the discipline. Let me, let me give you an example in case I'm losing. Like accountability, Christian accountability. Sadly, Christian accountability can just turn into law, right? We go and we meet with our accountability partner. We admit what we did that week. A lot of times we're not honest, right? Um, here's an acronym. Tony's not here today. Is he, like, he likes those little acronyms. Roy likes those little acronyms, acronyms, all right? We need hot accountability, all right? What is that? Honest, open, and transparent, Honest, open, and transparent, Jesus-centered accountability. But most of the time, we go into accountability, we say what we're comfortable with saying, and we admit our sins, we walk out feeling a little better about ourselves, but there's been no real look at Jesus. In our fight clubs, I try to remind it, every look at sin, one look at sin, take 10 looks at Jesus. Somebody said that a long time ago, and that just has stuck with me. Take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. Otherwise, good things can become just effort things and law things instead of being Jesus things. So it's all about Jesus. It's all about centering our lives on him. And we have to be careful because we can easily fall into the trap of being just external, self-energized, law-driven people. Verse 10, Paul continues on. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Wow, that's pretty startling that he just says that, right? Because of the glory that surpasses it. No glory at all. How many Christians are tempted to just quantify their lives by reducing them to an external practices instead of this internal grace-drawn practice of transformation? You do it, I do it. We're all guilty of it where we set these standards, I made it to church. Wow, I'm doing pretty good. I made it to church today. I read my Bible four out of five days, right? I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And we turn things that should be just fountains of grace in our life just to pr- provide us opportunities just to know God and make him known better, and we turn these into legalism. Maybe not the worst type of legalism where we think that we're earning our salvation. That's the ultimate, ultimate ploy of Satan to think that you can some way earn your your salvation. That's an extreme case of legalism, but it's also just creating extra biblical rules to judge people on those. They're like, I'm doing this stuff, and they're not doing it, so I must be better than they are. And we create these rules that 
we create a hierarchy of like, here's who's righteous because they do or don't do these things. Others demote Jesus and focus on duty. There's no joy in that. If you're just being a religious person and checking off the boxes, there's no joy. Why? Because there's no relationship with Jesus. You've been created in Christ Jesus, for Christ Jesus. So don't ask the law of condemnation to do what only Jesus can do. A long time ago, a guy named John Bunyan is credited with saying this. He says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel bring. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You may think, well, I don't feel like I'm flying. I don't feel like my face is shining. I'm going to encourage you to get to know Jesus. Allow your life to be centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ and see what happens. Law-keeping gives us appearance of morality, but it fails to change the heart. And so in closing, our head takeaway is found in verse 11. For if, I had 10 more pages, by the way, but I had to cut it off. Uh, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So the gospel message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus is God's final word. That's his final word for us. The new covenant, the gospel, build your life around that. And then our heart application. Ask yourself this question. Really just think about this question. Are you miserable or are you finding greater joy in Jesus? Are you miserable? If you're miserable, maybe even sitting right here right now, you claim to be a Christian and you're miserable. Are you trying to live your life by duty, by the law, what the law can't provide? Or are you fighting against the work of the Spirit in your life? Like I said, there's been times in my life where I've just, the Spirit, I could hear that voice of the Spirit, but, and I've talked to many of you and you say the same thing, but you're just like covering your ears. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you. And we run for a while and we seek after pleasure for a while and it seems to be working and bringing us a fulfillment. But if you're truly a believer, you can only run so far before God will grab you and get a hold of you and bring his discipline to you because he loves you. And he won't allow his children just to run crazy. And so are you fighting against the work of the Spirit? And then our hands. Sean didn't know this, but he gave us a good preview of the last verse that he read. I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation because I love the way that they translate the, the, the word here. For we are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The new covenant says, God poured out his love on you. Why are you fighting the best thing that could ever be in your life? Why are you fighting the work, the work of the Holy Spirit? The wooing of the Spirit, the instruction and behavioral commands and guidelines of the Word that help you in tandem with the Spirit live your life in a way that's glorifying and pleasing to God and points others to you and allows you to love freely with no boundaries. Why are you fighting that? You're God's masterpiece, created anew 
brand new in Christ. And he's got a great plan for you, for his will. Don't fight that. Admit that you've not been living according to your identity. Admit you've been running and doing your own thing. Admit to God, he already knows, but admit to him that you've been refusing to listen to the Spirit. And allow the Spirit to have reign in your heart and to your life. I promise you, I promise you, you'll find greater joy in Jesus than what you're experiencing right now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for just your amazing word that just tells us who we are and just gives us wings to fly and allows our face to shine, not because we're great, because you're great. And Jesus is working in us and through us. And we've been given this righteousness of Christ. And God, we can't comprehend it. And it's a mysterious process that you would take us and use us to be your ambassadors in this world. But we thank you for your call upon our life. And God, I pray for the miserable Christian out there who's fighting you tooth and nail. God, may they submit to you, to the work of your spirit. Bring them to their knees in any way they need to, you need to, in order to get their attention so they bring glory to you and honor you in all that they do. God, we thank you for your grace. May we live by it today and every day. In Jesus' name.